Hello and welcome to Integrating Chinese Medicine with the Dow Health. I'm Elizabeth Cullen. And I'm Georgia Fong. And we are traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. We are your hosts, providing an educational platform for practical ways to integrate Eastern medicine into your Western lifestyle. Throughout this podcast series, we will be discussing the benefits of getting to know our bodies in a practical sense and how to be an advocate for your own health. to Integrating Chinese Medicine podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Natalie Douglas, who will we, today will be talking about the truth about thyroid and women's health for episode nine. Natalie K. Douglas is a qualified holistic dietitian and nutritionist speaker and host of the Holistic Nutritionist podcast. Through her successful online programs, Thyroid Rescue and Gut Rescue, and in her fully booked clinical practice, Natalie helps women experiencing thyroid, gut, and hormonal issues to reclaim their energy, transform their digestive health, and balance their hormones so they can live happy, healthy, and empowered lives. Natalie has been a featured expert in Australian women's health, men's health, the house of wellness, I Quit Sugar, and across various online media. Her results-focused holistic approach combines the power of functional testing, real food, smart supplementation, movement, stress and sleep management, and emotional and spiritual well-being. Natalie has completed further study in naturopathy and functional medicine, and is also a certified yoga teacher and fitness instructor. So welcome, Nat. Thanks, guys. Love listening to a little bit of a background on myself. <laughs> so good. I'm like, oh, I did that stuff. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice reminder, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. Is. Thank you for your time, Nat. It's so good to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. It's been a long time coming. Yes. Mm. I'm very excited to listen to all the things that you have to talk about. Likewise. Love chatting with you guys. Yeah, it's so good. So for a little bit of background, we focus on shared care a lot with Natalie, with our patients. Um, two minds are better than one. Yes. And, mm. uh, and that has a really fresh and clear way of looking at health and complex cases especially with the thyroid and we're so excited to unpack the mystery of the thyroid with you today Nat. Should we get started? Yeah Yeah. so we'll start with the role of the thyroid in menstrual cycle including irregular periods. Yeah such a great question and I, I definitely think that this is one of the most common questions and it's also one that can feel confusing to understand. So firstly, some of the key roles of thyroid hormones in a healthy cycle are that thyroid hormones are essentially like the energy currency of the body. So that's definitely an overly simplified way of looking at it, but it's something that is is relative or true enough to um, to kind of have it have that in the back of your mind when you think about thyroid hormones. Okay. So if someone doesn't have enough thyroid hormones, 
then it will affect, um, I guess, follicle maturation or producing good quality eggs. And it'll also affect the body's ability to ovulate and therefore have enough progesterone. Because as we know, the only way to produce progesterone is via ovulation. Mm -hmm. And progesterone is also needed to thin our uterine lining. It lightens periods. It calms anxiety. It allows us to hold a pregnancy and is, is generally just a good thing to have on your team. Mm -hmm. And as far as the story of irregular periods goes, the hormonal system works on, uh, I guess, loops of negative feedback and different parts are constantly talking to each other. So basically, if your thyroid hormones are dropping, then your brain will produce a hormone called thyrotropin, thyrotropin releasing hormone, which then triggers the release of another hormone called, called thyroid stimulating hormone, which is why we often see TSH, which a lot of people might be familiar with that on their blood test if they see it. So we often see that go up in people with an underactive thyroid. And at the same time, your prolactin, which is another hormone can increase. So the way this ties all in is that when prolactin increases, it suppresses ovulation. And what happens is for the nerds out there, it then basically suppresses another one of our hormones um, called gonadotropin releasing hormone. Mm -hmm. And that is, is think of that as like the boss of all of your sex hormones. And yeah. so if it's not working or it's not telling your body to produce your sex hormones, then we have a problem and then it has this like cascade effect where then it can lead to irregular periods. So it's, it's really confusing to try and think of because there are so many complex processes that happen when it comes to the interaction between thyroid hormones and sex hormones. But by and large, it has a lot to do with its effect on ovulation. Um, what do you guys think from a TCM uh, perspective as well? Because I'm always interested to know. So I guess when we talk about the thyroid from a Chinese medicine side of things, we'll talk about kidney yang. Yeah. And we'll talk about kidney yin as well and also the spleen. Yeah. So I guess there's a number of reasons, Nat, depending on the underlying issue, what's going on with the patient when we talk in that Chinese medicine paradigm. But when we talk about from a hormonal perspective, you really are looking at is there enough kidney yin, kidney yang to support ovulation? and then to come into a luteal phase with progesterone. Yeah. But then you're also looking at the spleen as well and how the spleen is supporting the body to transform and support chi and blood. Yeah. So then you've got the liver role as well for stress. So I guess, you know, how we look at prolactin as one reason being elevated could be due to stress. Totally. Yeah, so we would look at that from the liver side of things as well. And calming the central nervous system down. Yeah. But when mm. you spoke about the deficiency of the thyroid hormones and that energy currency of the body, we, from a Chinese medicine perspective, we come into that deficiency of qi and blood yeah. and a deficiency of the organ systems not being adequate enough to, you know, come into the different stages of the menstrual cycle. Not communicate. Mm. Yeah. And I guess then if you look at the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, if yeah. that's being switched off in some form, then we're working on the bilo and the bi sorry, sorry, bilo and by my yeah. um, channels as well to connect through the heart and through the ovaries as well in the central nervous system that 
Mm, I love that. It's so, it's so fascinating. And I love how, I love how like this, like that both approaches can work together. And I mean, we're good evidence of that from all the shared care patients, but I love that. I love that explanation and it makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I guess for the listeners as well, Nat, when you say that um, the GNRH is turning off the sex hormones, what do you mean by the sex hormones? So sex hormones being uh, your estrogen and your progesterone. So there's a few steps that come before that, but for everyone listening, it the way that hormone signaling often works is usually the message starts in your brain and it tells your ovaries what to do. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how I would explain that side of things. Okay. Um, now, I can't wait to pick your brain on this one. So with the misdiagnosis of, poly- of polycystic ovarian syndrome with, that we see so much in clinic, and I'm sure you do too, what is your opinion on a misdiagnosis of PCOS for thyroid issues? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. See it all the time. <laughs> get this out there as much as possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, yeah, it is very common and also... The problem as well is that while PCOS is absolutely misdiagnosed a lot, it also is true that thyroid issues can occur with PCOS. Yeah. So one of the main reasons why I think it happens is because PCOS A is often diagnosed or overdiagnosed, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And with thyroid issues, symptomatically, people are often presenting with you know, unexplained weight gain, difficulty losing weight, struggles falling pregnant, hair loss and irregular cycles. And all of these can be symptoms of PCOS too. Mm. However, the driver behind a thyroid issue versus PCOS can be different. And this is where as practitioners, we should be focusing, um, like that's where we should have our focus and Mm. asking our patients, which I'm sure you guys do either directly or indirectly finding out, like how did your PCOS get diagnosed? Mm -hmm. So um, as an example, the Androgen Excess and PCOS Society say that to be diagnosed with PCOS, what Mm -hmm. should be met are all three um, criteria, which are one, that irregular periods or polycystic ovaries ovaries on ultrasound are there, that there are high androgens on a blood test or symptoms of high androgens. So things like acne, facial or body hair, um, you know, like as in like hair growth on your chin, on your nipples, um, cheeks, on your belly or your upper lip, um, hair loss or thinning. And then number three, that other reasons for high androgens have been ruled out, such as being on the pill, some medications, high prolactin, hyperthyroidism, as in having an underactive thyroid is ruled out. And then there's are some other kind of more rare um, uh, diseases and, and stuff like that, which we won't go into. So I think it's important that if you're faced with the conundrum um, to note down, like as a patient, to note down all of your symptoms and then work with a practitioner to get your thyroid assessed properly, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, later on, and your uh, sex hormones are tested and to have you know, to also perhaps um, make sure that all of that is being taken into consideration. But I really think it comes down to the confusion is from 
the overlap in symptoms and that just being so confusing for people. Um, what about from a, is there like an overlap for you guys from a TCM pra- like perspective in how they present? Well, we see PCOS, two conditions with PCOS where we see the woman that's overweight, PCOS symptoms, and then we've got a woman who's underweight mm. who still is diagnosed with PCOS. Mm. So from a Chinese medicine perspective, we treat that differently in the sense of clearing dampness yeah. or regulating with a chi, so calming the central nervous system. Yeah, definitely. And then mm. if we look at someone who may be misdiagnosed as yeah. PCOS for hyperbolemic amenorrhea, yeah. then you're looking at a whole other picture of then coming back into those kidneys again. Yeah. 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 And I think that's so important. And especially how you're saying there that the diagnosis does change treatment. And that's the same for me as well. Like I'm not going to treat a PCOS patient necessarily in an identical way to how I'd treat a thyroid patient. And I think that's why getting the diagnosis right in the first place is so important because you know, as a, as an example, you might have a pure PCOS patient, like, and this is from my perspective that I might think that that person also has issues with insulin resistance and blood sugar and a short-term lower carb diet might be really beneficial for that person. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, I might have one, have someone who's got an underactive thyroid and no PCOS. And if I was to put them on a really low carb diet, it would make the situation worse. So I think that's why it's so important to not just take at face value what you've been told is a diagnosis and have have it constantly looked at from uh, other perspectives and in a really thorough way because I know that it is something that is so commonly misdiagnosed or even self-diagnosed based on symptoms it's just the word now is thrown around everywhere like Mm -hmm. and you know and if it's sometimes people are carrying this idea that they've got PCOS PCOS for what five to seven years Mm. they're going to have issues with falling pregnant and it's this side of things of if it hasn't been questioned again from the gp you know five to seven years ago it's like we need to have further investigation and i guess that's where your your own advocate as a patient getting that second second um diagnosis or opinion Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah definitely and coming down into those lifestyle factors, so Nat, does HIIT training and intermittent fasting play havoc with our menstrual cycle in terms of our hormones? Yeah, look, in my experience, yes, for most women, there are always exceptions to the rule, of course, but yeah. I think there are a few things that we need to remember here. And first of all, I think remembering that both of those things are stresses. So fasting is a stress. HIIT training is a stress mm. and while they can be beneficial stresses if where if it's matched with really good recovery and low stresses outside of that yeah. I don't know about you guys but most patients that I'm seeing are or already have an above average level of stress whether that is that they are mums that have kids, whether it's that they're young working professionals with busy lives, whether it's that they're just living, you know, in the modern world where we're exposed to more toxins or they've been living in a water damaged building or exposed to mold or they've gone through a trauma or they're just currently going through um, a difficult time in their life. So I really, the pandemic in general. 
Mm, yeah, right. So like 2020, 2021. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> so yeah, I totally think that it's it does in in my experience and they're not things that I encourage people to pursue um, for the most part I think that a lot of the research that's been done as far as intermittent fasting goes is actually research in men and when the research has been done in women and shown a benefit those women have been quite significantly overweight or had metabolic syndrome which goes kind of hand in hand with being you know overweight or obese so that's maybe one category in and of itself where maybe depending on still the context of their life there might be more of a benefit than a cost but I would say for most people you're better off doing more restorative exercise that is matched to your lifestyle As far as intermittent fasting goes, I'm definitely a fan of giving your digestive system a rest. But I I think for for my patients, I feel like a good kind of 12-hour overnight fast is plenty to get the benefit of, you know, what happens when we aren't having food constantly in our system without the detriment of prolonged fasting, that kind of 16-hour fast that is so commonly um, talked about in on blogs or just by people that are advocates of that way of eating. Mm, yeah, I guess um, with an intermittent fasting side of things, now I'd be curious of what you think. So do you say 16 hours for intermittent fasting Whereas sometimes I'll usually say that's gentle fasting for six, 16 hours and then having an eight-hour window of eating. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean. So it's kind of, uh, oh, well, I think that's what I mean. <laughs> Let's just get on the same page. So when I say intermittent fasting, yeah. I I think what people, in my experience, what women shouldn't do is yeah. fast for longer than about, I would say, 12 to 14 hours. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. okay. That's what I I find that to kind of be the sweet spot. Whenever I've pushed people into that kind of 16-hour fast, I just feel like it tips them over the edge in terms of stress. And I also feel like women in general undereat. And the premise of intermittent fasting is not to eat less it's to eat in a shortened window and what tends to happen if you tell a woman in my experience to intermittent fast uh, and they're doing it in that traditional way where they're only eating in an eight hour period and they're fasting for the other 16 Mm -hmm. they don't get that like not only do they have the stress of fasting they also layer on top the stress of under eating and it defeats a lot of the purpose of why we're intermittent fasting in the first place yeah okay okay so there's that added stress that we're trying to avoid yeah yeah exactly with um with the research Nat, what do you think from a postmenopausal side of things because usually i find that for women postmenopausal it can be quite effective yeah like yeah. totally agree with that. I don't yeah. know how much research is has been, I mean, it's been a little while since I've last jumped into it, but yeah. I'd say in my experience, yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. postmenopausal, definitely uh, more women respond in a more positive way. And yeah. then I'd also say that sometimes where I think benefit outweighs cost 
is in uh, autoimmunity because we know that there are really positive immune regulation effects when someone is is fasting. But again, I would usually still stick in that kind of 12 to 14 hour window if there's someone who still has a lot of stresses in their life outside of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's a good point. Yeah. I guess um, that takes us while we're talking about food um, into does diet affect the role of the thyroid nap? Yes, a hundred percent. And it like biggest pet peeve of mine, maybe not biggest, but one of them (laughs) is when patients are told, you know, you know, they get diagnosed with Hashimoto's or Graves disease and they say, you know, can I do anything from a diet perspective? And the answer is no, that doesn't affect your thyroid. And I think, oh, MG like no way is that true so I there are so many ways and for starters like to keep it really basic we need enough of certain key nutrients to even create thyroid hormones in the first place Mm -hmm. so as an example some of the key um, nutrients that we need to create our thyroid hormones are protein because it contains an amino acid called tyrosine and tyrosine is one of the building blocks of thyroid hormones zinc which actually assists in the conversion of your inactive thyroid hormone to your active thyroid hormone iodine which again is a building block of our thyroid hormones selenium which helps to again with that conversion from inactive to active thyroid hormone and it also helps to reduce stress on the gland which is particularly important for people who have uh, thyroid antibodies whether they be um, coming from Hashimoto's or Graves disease which are the two types of autoimmune thyroid conditions iron is the next one which is Uh, a cofactor so like a a helper for one of the enzymes that actually builds thyroid hormones so it's kind of like the construction worker Mm -hmm. Um, and then vitamin a which actually helps your cells be able to let thyroid hormones in inside them and therefore be able to do the job Mm -hmm. and vitamin d which also has a role in regulating the immune system and also regulating your TSH, which is the message that is sent from the brain that says, hey, thyroid, you know, produce thyroid hormones. So they're some really like simple, uh, I guess, ways where diet does influence your thyroid. Mm. And then the other aspect to it beyond just nutrients is and getting enough of those is also that, you know, it's my belief and my experience that we really do need an anti-inflammatory diet so that we are able to assist the thyroid hormones actually getting it into getting into the cells and being able to uh, convert into their active forms because a lot of uh, inflammation in the body will affect those processes. And when I talk about uh, avoiding inflammatory foods, Mm -hmm. some of the ones that I most commonly recommend that people uh, avoid uh, industrial seed oils. So things like peanut oil and vegetable oil, canola oil, et cetera, sugar, excess coffee, um, alcohol, dairy and gluten, I'd say are also quite common uh, things that are problematic in thyroid conditions in my experience. And also just too many packaged and processed foods that we are just not supposed to be eating. Uh, So I really think they're probably 
the key ways in which diet can affect thyroid function? I mean, there are a few others, but what about you guys, TCM experience, food, thyroid, what do you think? So definitely with you there on, on what you've said. Um, I guess when we talk about the thyroid from a Chinese medicine perspective and we talk about inflammation, so all those heating foods, so foods that are fried, sugar, anything that's going to drive inflammation, including coffee and alcohol, are all going to flare up the condition or aggravate it, mm. um, especially when we're trying to restore balance. So depending on the reason or what is the actual imbalance with the thyroid, then that's going to lead us to different Chinese dietary food therapy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, exactly what you've said is what is what we recommend. And, you know, eating those colors of the rainbow, making sure you've got that varied diet that includes the zinc, selenium, making sure you've got the vitamin D in there as well and the vitamin A and, and just making sure that it is a balanced diet, I guess. Mm, yeah, yeah, I love that. And what about do you, because I know often um, both both of you, often with our, our shared care patients, especially when we're talking about hormones and cycles and stuff, we're often talking about warming foods. As far mm. as maybe an underactive thyroid goes, is that also something you bring into play when we're talking about, um, you know, like do you talk about cooked and warming foods? Is there any relevance to that here? Yeah, most definitely. So when we talk about the spleen and supporting the warming foods is going to help with spleen chi and, um, and the spleen yin and yang. So the reason being is when we talk about the earth element, that's where the thyroid comes in. So the thyroid isn't seen as a specific organ in Chinese medicine. So that's where you need to support the spleen mainly to really support what you're eating to make sure the function of the spleen is working adequately. And then the spleen then nourishes that food and transforms it into the chi and blood that then nourishes all the other organs that we've spoken about. So definitely with the warming foods, that's what you're recommending and, and making sure you, you've got that support there yeah and i always like to explain it because our bodies run warm mm. it's easier for the spleen and the stomach to absorb and digest warm or previously cooked foods mm. so coming back to that nourishment and that blood and the energy for the rest of the body mm. and also to the brain and those hormones as well mm, i love that i love 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 that yeah. yeah so and you know it, it is one of those things where we understand that people can't eat completely warm foods and we never want to create that anxiety around oh this food isn't warm but at the mm -hmm. same time if you're balancing that and making sure 80 percent of your diet is warm then that's usually what our aim is with a patient yeah i love that and i feel like that's you know that's pretty realistic to to do and I agree with you on the you know you just got to do your best with what you can and as long as you're moving in the right direction it's still the right direction yeah definitely yeah. definitely and you know Nat because we do and I'm sure you do as well but we do promote prevention is better than cure so for a patient who's coming in who doesn't really have any thyroid issues you would still recommend this kind of style of eating the low inflammatory obviously but ensuring that they have enough zinc, iodine, selenium, just to continue to support the thyroid gland? Yeah, absolutely. I think that thyroid issues are more and more common. And I, I'm so with you in terms of don't wait for one to develop before you eat in a way that's going to support your thyroid health, because you can't go wrong by doing that. And eating an anti-inflammatory diet is has benefits across the board in terms of gut health, mental health, hormones, fertility. So I really see looking after your thyroid health is, is really looking after your whole body because 
I see the thyroid as kind of like the canary in the coal mine. And it's more of a signal that something else is off than Mm. the problem in and of itself. So totally anti-inflammatory diet all the way. Amazing. Um, So let's come in and talk about pregnancy. So now could you please tell us the role of the thyroid in a healthy pregnancy, also miscarriage and postpartum? Yeah, such a such an important topic, hey, and one that I'm really passionate about getting the word out there on. And I actually, I remember seeing someone, I think it might have been in research somewhere, uh, quote pregnancy as being the ultimate stress test for the thyroid, which sounds incredibly confronting when I first read it. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, it also is is pretty true. And that doesn't mean at all that we aren't capable of rising to the occasion. It just for me reminds me of how important it is to nourish it, you know, pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy and post-pregnancy. So there is a fair bit to cover here, but I guess to start with, from the perspective of being able to hold a pregnancy full term, we know that having a TSH above 2.5 while trying to inc- uh, while trying to conceive does increase the risk ca- uh, the risk of miscarriage, um, as does the presence of thyroid antibodies, yeah. and also important to know in males that low thyroid function also affects their sperm so reduced reduced progressive motility reduced volume and poorer morphology or kind of what they look like or the quality of them Um, and always passionate about dropping in male uh, health here when it comes to fertility because it is a 50-50 job. And then moving into once someone is pregnant, a few important uh, contributions from your thyroid include that for the first trimester, your body supplies all thyroid hormones and iodine for both you and your baby. And both are important for their growth in every single way, including their brain development, which is probably one of the most commonly known about ones, especially when it comes to iodine. Mm -hmm. And then for trimester two and three, your body supplies some thyroid hormones and all of the iodine for your baby. And if you don't have enough thyroid hormones, it also can increase the risk of several issues for the mum, including miscarriage or early pregnancy loss, mm-hmm. preeclampsia, uh, so high, high blood pressure during pregnancy, anemia, um, and uh, gestational hypertension, so high blood pressure, uh, post-part, uh, postpartum hemorrhaging or postpartum bleeding. And then for the baby, if we don't have enough thyroid hormone, we know that there is an increased risk of preterm birth, low birth weight, developmental delays and uh, congenital uh, malformations or issues there as well. Mm-hmm. And then postpartum while breastfeeding, just to note that you actually still supply all of your baby's ID need, which further help to meet their thyroid hormone requirements and influences their brain development further. So it's incredibly important. And also something that I'm really passionate about bringing awareness to for new mums is that it's very common for, um, you know, women to get misdiagnosed with postpartum depression when it's actually an underactive thyroid issue. So regardless of, you know, what stories might come up for someone in that time, like often I have women feeling like they're just not coping, that it must just be them, that they're just not a good mum and thinking, oh no, I'm paranoid if I go and get 
test it or go and check it out because this is probably just new mum fatigue or new mum hormonal shifts that are causing me to feel this way. And I actually think that every single woman should go and get their thyroid tested pre, during and post-pregnancy just to check in and see where these things are at because there's so much that we can do both from a natural perspective and also a conventional medical perspective to help support a woman through all phases of that. And I guess, Nat, on that note, so we've spoken about preconception previously, but when we talk about post-pregnancy, when are you recommending for a mother to have her thyroid tested and, and to flag it with her GP? Because I guess, you know, in those early days, it's adapting, you know, the baby blues side of things. As you said, you know, it can be misdiagnosed for postnatal depression. But when those flags are starting to occur, when would you recommend for a mother to be getting her thyroid rechecked? Yeah, so I usually say around the six-week mark. Um, And it's, you know, I would encourage someone to go earlier if they're really not feeling well or if they already know they have pre-existing thyroid issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, But otherwise, if it's just, you know, that adjustment period, it's mild, there are no pre-existing thyroid issues, then around that six-week mark, if there were pre-existing thyroid issues, then I'd probably say a little bit like a few weeks earlier than that um, and just keeping an eye on it knowing that it can change and always just listening to your body and not being afraid to advocate for yourself and if you're struggling to get tests done through your GP and you're under the care of another allied health professional like a naturopath, nutritionist, TCM practitioner, et cetera, that have the ability to help support you and advocate for you in getting further testing done, then make sure you make use of that because I just think that everyone needs to remember that they know their body best. Yeah, most definitely. So delving into that a little bit more, not just for postpartum um, women, but everyone in general, um, when testing thyroid panel, why is it so important to test TSH, T3, T4 and thyroid antibodies? And why do we so often see this missed with the GPs? Yeah. Welcome to my frustrated life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the struggle is so real. And I just want everyone to know they are not alone that we as your practitioners also are very frustrated when all you get done is a TSH. So to the GP's defense, the reason why they only do that is because under Medicare, they have certain things that they're allowed to do that are set by their organization or their governing body, I guess, that, you know, they are able to justify having covered by Medicare. Mm -hmm. And so from their perspective, the first line of testing for thyroid issues is supposed to be a TSH. And then if your TSH is out of range, then in their books, that's when Uh, it's indicated to test uh, further as in do a T4. Uh, Rarely do they do a T3, but that would prompt Mm. them to do a T4. Uh, And maybe thyroid antibodies if there's a family history of that. Um, Now, frustrating, yes, agreed. Mm. And also that's just the way it is right now. The reason why I think partly that's the case for them is because their treatment for like a thyroid issue, an underactive thyroid, uh, for example, is giving replacement thyroid hormones, so giving T4. Mm -hmm. And so they have nothing in their toolkit 
that is going to influence your thyroid antibodies. Their belief or most conventional belief is that the thyroid antibodies there, there's nothing that you can do about them. Um, so they'll test them once, but they often won't retest them because what's the point? They just use them as a diagnostic tool to say, yes, there's Hashimoto's there or yes, there's Graves disease there. Mm -hmm. Now, from a more functional perspective or holistic perspective, we absolutely need to get the whole panel done because uh, TSH, which we've spoken about before, is not a thyroid hormone. It's a brain hormone or a mm -hmm. brain messenger that goes to the thyroid and says, yo, thyroid, I need some thyroid hormones here because I'm picking up in the body that we don't have enough. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in a perfect world, uh, that whole system would be working really well, but that is not always the case. So if we're only testing a TSH, we're assuming that the brain is uh, that the thyroid is doing what the brain has told it to do, which is not always the case. So we want to see what the actual thyroid hormones levels are. So T4 and T3 are the actual thyroid hormone levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, by testing those, we can find out, are you making enough? And also, are they getting converted into the active form? So T4 is more of an inactive thyroid hormone. So you can think it of think of it as like money in the bank. And yeah. then T3 is your active thyroid hormone. So it's the spending money. So it makes stuff happen in the body. Yeah. And then the thyroid antibodies are really important to assess because thyroid antibodies can start to rise eight to 10 years before your thyroid function goes out of whack. And as proactive, you know, practitioners, as proactive uh, health uh, concerned people, we mm. want to know about that. We want to know if there's an autoimmune process happening in the body because there are things we can do about it. And therefore, we have a really unique opportunity to potentially stop that from progressing to an active thyroid issue if we are testing them sooner. Uh, than just waiting for the thyroid to go out of whack, if that makes sense. Definitely. Complete sense, yeah, yeah. And from a preconception perspective, if we can find out if there's thyroid antibodies, then that's going to be such a benefit for the patient so we can have that treated before planning to conceive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, um, I guess, from a Chinese medicine side of things as well, Nat, so the T4 scene, as, as you were saying, the storage um, but more of a yin side and then the t3 is more of yang yeah yeah so that's um it's just interesting to hear about it from both sides so. yeah well yeah. it makes sense it totally is that that balance yeah. between the two yeah and, and just i guess jumping back to the thyroid antibodies um why is this so important for patients to test if they are planning to conceive well, it's important because the presence of thyroid antibodies can increase the risk of miscarriage. And so we know that there are certain things we can do to help lower those thyroid antibodies. Uh, mm. So as an example, we know that selenium is helpful in that, myonositol is helpful in that, and there are also certain herbs that can be of use to kind of help to regulate the immune system, which is essentially what is driving those antibodies in the first place. So it ties back into the fact that 
thyroid antibodies can increase or do increase the risk of miscarriage. So we want to know about that and do what we can to mitigate that as much as possible before Mm -hmm. someone is trying to conceive. And I guess what I also want to stress here, uh, particularly if we have people listening who currently have thyroid antibodies and maybe are trying to conceive or already pregnant, it's not to say that if you have thyroid antibodies, you're definitely going to have a miscarriage. That is not true at all. There are plenty of people that have healthy uh, pregnancies and do not miscarry with thyroid antibodies. However, it's an opportunity for us to do something about it beforehand or even during, or just have an awareness around that so that uh, there's, there's things we can implement Mm. during that person's journey. Thank you for clearing that up, Nat. I think that's really important for people. Mm. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. Um, So Nat, the next question that we wanted to ask was if a patient is unsure, they have too much or too little iodine, we wanted to know how we test iodine. Yeah, this one is another really controversial topic. And (laughs) the answer to this is there is absolutely no perfect way to test iodine. All the tests that are available out there have their flaws. Um, And so the one that I choose to use in clinic is a random urinary iodine test. And the way that we make that test more accurate uh, is firstly making sure that the patient uh, is avoiding iodine and seafood and also cruciferous vegetables three to four days prior to the test and making sure that the test is done fasted first thing in the morning. Doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what time of cycle, what time of their cycle they do it, but just making sure that those recommendations are followed. And also if someone is on thyroid medication to do the test before you take your thyroid medication. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is to make sure that when a random urinary iodine test is done, that a urinary creatinine level is also requested alongside of that. And what that does is it allows us as practitioners to correct uh, the reading for the concentration of the sample. And we can actually apply a certain formula to make sure that we uh, aren't being fooled by how, you know, watery or concentrated that urine is. So the reason why I choose to use a random urinary iodine test instead of a loading test, which a loading test is where someone takes a mega dose of iodine and then collects their urine for 24 hours and sees how much is retained versus excreted mm-hmm. is because a like a lot of patients that I'm seeing already have thyroid antibodies or thyroid issues and I do not want them to take mega doses of iodine period because it can cause problems Um, and b i don't see it being that much more accurate than a random urinary iodine sample and i find better compliance with doing a one-off than asking someone to make sure they collect every single bit of pee for a whole 24-hour period which you know is is quite impractical as well and the other like third thing i wanted to just add there is that i never like use an iodine reading in isolation. So I'm also always looking at what is their dietary history like and also what do their thyroid hormones look like? So if someone is iodine deficient, they will often uh, present with a low T4 or they'll present with a um, 
a ratio of T4 to T3 that is less than three to one um, because that's just a, the body has a tendency to um, over convert to T3 when it's in an iodine deficient state. So always making sure that you're controlling for the factors you can and also um, interpreting that reading alongside other things, uh, other assessment tools to improve the accuracy. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what do we do? Yes. yes. <laughs> and get some practitioner help while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> definitely and that's and you know what I guess that's such a such an important note that you do need a practitioner who is going to support and guide you through this as well because it can be very confusing territory and a little bit overwhelming it can be overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah totally so I guess now our last question is is if there was one message you would like to get out there about thyroid health for women what would it be I would say to make sure that A, you look closely at your thyroid health six to 12 months before you want to conceive and then relook again at it uh, three to four months prior if we're talking about that kind of context because I know we have a lot of listeners that would fall into that category. And mm. the other thing that I'd say is, is to make sure that if you feel a niggle, if you feel like something's just off in your body, then make sure that you push for a comprehensive thyroid test and don't just write your symptoms off as, oh, maybe I'm just stressed or maybe I'm just tired. You mm -hmm. may be that both of those things and it, it might just come down to that. But if you don't do thorough testing, then you'll never know. And I think it's really a really important area of health to kind of monitor and check in on every now and again as well. Most definitely. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nat, for your time. Thank you. I've learned a lot. Oh, yeah. You're a wealth of knowledge. You are. <laughs> right back at you guys. I love sharing <laughs> care with you and I look forward to future chats. Thank you.